0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. Today is March 6th. I hope you are all doing well. I'm here today with Prateek and our other host, Nick. How are you guys doing today? I appreciate you guys being on.
1: It's great to be with you, Tyler. I see Prateek has already gone running for the hills. Um, I think he's a little intimidated from our conversation last time, but uh, I'm looking forward to today's today's debate.
2: Yes. You missed out on our whole weed debate, man. Oh, we man. had an intense weed debate last episode.
1: Dude, I listened. It was great.
0: Oh, awesome. Okay. Well, sorry. With that said, we'll just uh, talk about some of the topics we're going to be diving in today. So as some of you may know, the Senate just passed the $1.9 trillion uh, COVID relief bill. It's going to be going back to the House. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about how Americans are perceiving uh, Biden's COVID response in general, Uh, the federal minimum wage being rejected in that bill. We were talking about Governor Cuomo Uh, He's stripped of emergency COVID powers because of all the craziness that's been going on with him, sexual assault allegations, killing upwards of 9,000 people in nursing homes. Um, And then at the end, we have some interesting Middle East talk. So with that said, we'll be starting off with the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill that was passed by the Senate this weekend. Uh, So I'm going to hand it off first to Prateek. I know you got some things to say about this. So Prateek, uh, start us off.
2: All right. So um, as of today, um, there was a 50 to 49 party line vote that allowed the $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill to pass the Senate. Nearly every single Republican in the Senate voted against the bill, and every single Democrat voted for the bill, except one. Um, I think one. No, no, they all voted for the bill. Never mind. And because th- this is such a controversial bill, it is like really interesting to note the different p- thing parts of the bill itself. So the bill provides direct payments of up to $1,400 for most Americans in extended emergency unemployment benefits. There are vast piles of spending for COVID-19 vaccines and testing, states and cities, schools and ailing industries, along with tax breaks to help lower-earning people, families with children, and consumers buying health insurance. So... This measure follows five earlier ones, totaling about $4 trillion that Congress has enacted since last spring and comes amid signs of a potential turnaround. Um, Under their compromise, $300 of weekly emergency unemployment checks will be provided on top of regular state benefits, which will be renewed with a final payment made on September 6th. And the House version had $400 $400 weekly payments as opposed to this one having $300. And some of the other uh, other compromises and parts of the bill include um, that the, the amount would be gradually reduced for the 1400 stimulus checks, which will go to most Americans, but would not go to all Americans, which will give zero money to people earning 80,000 and couples making 160,000. So if you make less than that, then you'll receive something. But if you make more than that, you won't receive any money. And this will also include um, providing increased education funding and will provide more money towards schools that are opening up. And this will be one of the largest um, trillion dollar packages that we've passed in the history of the United States and, if it goes to the if it passes through the House as well. So, and
0: yeah. they all, I, I believe they also said that um, the first $10,000 of, I guess, unemployment or relief would be non-tax deductible. Or, sorry, it's just non taxed. Yeah. So, I, you know, that's probably a good thing. I don't want people getting bills after having unemployment and then going, oh, wait, I can't even afford to pay this bill back. So, I think that makes sense. And I'm happy that the minimum wage part of it didn't pass. Uh, this is something I want to bring to Nick. How I know we talked about how you would tie the minimum wage to inflation. Would you now say it's better off to have a $15 minimum wage or keep what we have?
1: So, personally, I mean, look. Let's not cut corners. I'm a liberal. I think the minimum wage should be higher, but I'm not, you know, I'm not completely sold on the $15. Like if you look at California, which everyone thinks of when they think of the minimum wage debate, their reps really pushing it forward, very high cost of living. California's minimum wage is $14. It's not even at the $15. So when you're trying to be a pioneer, when you're trying to get bring the rest of the country along and sponsor these bills, I think you need to take make an example for the rest of the country and actually put your money where your mouth is and raise the minimum wage yourself before you go to these other states, which I mean, a lot of them turn them down, which was a little a little strange to me. You look at a place like Maine and you think, OK, Maine, a lot of people living out in the boonies. Yeah, they, they have some cities. OK, um, but Maine, New Hampshire, these are states where well, New Hampshire, the minimum wage North is Carolina where
0: is. W- yeah,
1: I mean, but Maine, the federal minimum wage or the federal minimum wage you know across the country is only $7.25 right now um but for Maine it's $12.15 and yet one of Maine's senators the independent senator who always votes with the democrats king he voted against the minimum wage same thing in Delaware both democratic senators voted against a minimum wage increase and you see that throughout a couple different states such that only 42 democrats supported that bill and it got shot down and um i know critique has very strong opinions on the minimum wage and is very glad that it did not pass and was canned
2: very glad no but see i'm mainly glad because of the impact that it would have on me like for small business owners this is one of those things that would directly impact us like we're already getting hurt especially with covid and how much money we're able to make and you know we're already having a hard time keeping workers and Making sure that we're able to pay all of our workers and be able to pay our taxes and everything on time, and it's a big struggle for small business owners altogether. Whether you're a restaurant, bar, hotel owner, which the federal minimum wage would directly impact much more than a lot of the other industries. Like if you're a Walmart or you're a Target, like they already have a lot of money. It's not like they're dealing with like you know a limited amount of revenue that they have to figure out how they're going to make all their ends meet. So like it's a different scenario. So like this to me, like more than a political thing, is a personal thing. I would rather it not pass for my own selfish reasons. And like, I feel like any other business owner that would be in the same exact position as me would probably feel the same way. Do so you do you not- think
0: um, a higher minimum wage would be acceptable at at companies with a lot of people? Like you said, the Walmarts and such, having $15 minimum so- wage there, but then small businesses, let's say under hundred, under 500, I don't know what the number would be that maybe we shouldn't have it for those guys.
2: I actually wrote an article about this. So like, and I was trying to get it published in one of the magazines, but what my, what the article was talking about is that big businesses that could directly compete with smaller businesses. So like a Walmart would be competing with smaller stores and like independent stores that are selling, you know, consumer products, things like that. they whenever a minimum wage shoot happens, right? Originally, those big companies don't really promote it and are not in favor of it. However, whenever there is a big minimum wage jackup to that extent, a lot of the small businesses, like those small independent restaurants or small, small independent stores that are competing with that Walmart, they can't directly be able to compete with that Walmart in terms of making sure that they're able to keep all their workers and pay all those people on time, because they're already struggling with revenue and like trying to make sure that they're able to make enough money to be able to sustain themselves as a business so what ends up happening is that whenever those walmart employees end up making like whenever their minimum wage is like 15 dollars, they're not going to go work for your local store because your local store is not going to be able to afford paying that person 15 dollars an hour what ends up happening is that in that whole conversation, the big corporations and the big guys end up eating up all their small market competition because they can't—they can't, you know, compete with them at the same level because of the amount of perks that those bigger guys are able to offer. And then what ends up hurting the small people altogether—the employees and the entire employee base—is that those big corporations can directly move towards like having you know what do you could call it technology to be able to replace all those workers like HEGOS. wouldn't that happen
0: anyway though it like does, would the minimum wage it does, be there
2: but it expedites it okay the sure. minimum wage gives them another reason to do it because if they can have technology replace workers and people like us are not really needed as much anymore because technology is able to do that job much more efficiently then Whenever you end up killing out all your competition that is making sure that these people get a job because we can't afford moving to all this new technology bases, whenever that's the whole scenario, the big businesses and the big corporations are directly going to do that, which is in turn going to hurt all the people that are living below the poverty but line. Can't they, they do it
0: anyway? Can't it? Walmart today? go? I'm going to pay everyone $15 an hour and under, under, like, make they sure that no one can compete weight. with them anyway. So, why, why does the regulation, I guess...
2: Uh, because it, it does that because look now whenever you, you i mean you already have minimum wage increasing in all these industries so what i'm saying is like there's always an industry related minimum wage whether or not there's a federally declared minimum wage or whether or not the state declares a minimum wage all the industry itself is going to work compete with each other to provide a competing wage now the competing wage might not be that high but it will automatically create a minimum wage on its own. Like I've talked about, like the, the hotel industry, like if I'm paying house 10 bucks an hour yeah. and the hotel behind me is paying them 11 bucks an hour, they might go move over there unless like I'm able to keep those workers that want to work for me and compared to working for somebody else they don't know. But there's always that, you, you if you're like arguing, that oh, I want to pay this person 7.25, they're not going to work for you at all as it is. So it's always like that market is always shifting. So what ends up happening is with the big guys, whenever they have a minimum wage, which many of them do, like Walmart has their own minimum wage that they set. Costco just raised it to $16, I
0: think. Exactly.
2: So they all do that already. But what happens is that whenever you federally mandate it, small businesses are going to create as much of a competing wage as they can afford to provide because they want to try to keep as many workers that are good as they can. They don't want them to go work somewhere else because they want them to help benefit their own business. So whenever you raise that minimum wage and you like target, Oh, $15 an hour. Well, the companies that are not able to make that much money to be able to afford one person and paying them $15 an hour, they're going to get out of business altogether, basically making all these big guys more of a monopoly. And whenever they become more of a monopoly, they're in control of doing whatever they want because they can set their prices and they can set their standards. And eventually they're not going to be hiring as many people because they're better off moving towards technology that gives them more profitability margin that's longer. all
0: true and with that let's move on to how do you guys do you think it's going to pass the house so the democrats actually have a what a 10 vote advantage in the house but we know there's a lot of controversy in the democratic party those on the hard progressive side that might want to enforce some kind of minimum wage and say regardless i'm not going to vote for it otherwise even though timing wise It really is a hostage situation if you wanted to get it passed now, in my kind of opinion, because we need some kind of relief out. They're saying they want to provide relief, but they're also saying, no, we need these concessions in order to provide relief for everyone. I'm hoping something does pass and I'm hoping it doesn't change too much, Um, but I'm I'm not so confident. I'm actually I'm actually worried that it might not pass at all. Uh,
1: What might not pass,
0: Tyler? The bill in the House.
2: When it goes back.
0: Okay, gotcha.
2: I think I mean, there's not that much differences between two different bills except the minimum wage and the minimum wage thing. Like, I mean, if there were enough of these Senate Democrats that were against it, because there were eight, seven and the one independent. I mean, there I mean, there's cause enough that all this stuff will pass in in the House because they already have a Democratic majority. And most of the other stuff is just increasing the amount of funding that goes to things. It's just them debating on the amount of money that goes to it. So I feel like it would be a bigger loss if the Democrats can't like pass this bill because the House Democrats, they have enough to make, they have enough for a majority as it is. And they want to make sure that they're able to get this thing through. So then whenever midterm elections come around, they can at least have this one, you know, thing that they can say, we got this stuff through and, you know, because of the Biden presidency.
0: So they want to
2: have that on their like belt as like, you know, their one achievement, at least. I get
0: that. Nick, would you agree with that? Do you think it's going to pass?
1: I think it will. And I think what you guys were talking about, about how, you know, Prateek you're a small business owner times are tough right now during the pandemic. And I think that's what they're trying to get at in this bill. I know we got a little bit on the minimum wage and we can get into that conversation uh, in a future episode. I think it's really interesting to unpack that a little bit more. But uh, for this one, they threw in $25 billion in funding for restaurants and bars. And I mean, all, all of us, you know, I think everyone can think of at least one place that they used to like to go out to eat at occasionally that's now been shut down. I mean, where I live, there are some iconic old bars. Um, Actually, I live outside of DC. So there were some iconic old bars in the district that I love to go to. Um, And a lot of them shut down. I mean, some of them relocated, which um, uh, to be honest, I don't know if I'm gonna visit them anymore because now they're in a completely different side of the city, but um, I think the bill recognizes the fact that certain parts of the economy, such as hospitality, such as dining, have been hit really hard and they need focused funding to get their sector back on track so that we can reopen and have those jobs come back quicker. So I'm, I remain hopeful. Like Pratik said, Democrats have a majority in the set in the house. I think it'll pass.
2: And see my, my only thing is like where I talk about the minimum wage is that my issue is more about, all right, so these small businesses, so like these restaurants and bars are getting money, but you're raising the minimum wage on them. Is not going to potentially, but it's not in the bill any.
1: anymore. pratik
2: Yeah, I know, but, but the
0: fact that hold on, but the like, fact that they <laughs> wanted to push for it so hard in this, specifically at this time to me is a little scummy. Because oh, so you no. Know, oh,
2: okay, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I got Nick, a new, Nick, go new ahead. story.
1: No, go ahead. Sorry, I. You were about to get fiery and heated. Tyler. No, 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 I wanted you fine. to let it out. Dude. Release <laughs> the dragon. But, no, I had to. cage him. I mean, look. I think the counter argument to a lot of what pratik was saying would be that. Um the minimum wage we have currently is not a livable wage that is what a lot of people are pushing which is sure you know completely understand that it can put some small businesses out of business that's a reality you can't cover that up but if you're paying people below the poverty line in terms of wages and they're just stagnating and getting further and further into debt and barely making ends meet we should raise the minimum wage and it sucks. Some small businesses are going to be put out of business, but if you're not paying your workers enough to even live their lives in the most basic sense, then should you really be in well, business? I don't know, man. Business mm-hmm. is really tough. Like it's not like to
0: just put more barriers to entry to me only emphasizes more monopolies and less of the little guys. Cause those guys can't handle this change. It's not, it's not the people you'd want to be affected by the change that are affected by the change in my opinion, and, but I, and I, I get have, what you're saying.
2: You also said, I remember this. So like when it comes to workers and when it comes to whenever you actually run a business, like I have a maintenance guy that we pay $15 an hour to right now. He's like one of the best maintenance people that we've ever like had in or it's like 20 years of business. Like this dude can literally do anything. So his thing is that now with the $15 minimum wage, if you were to implement that, if I am already paying this guy $15 an hour, that means that I'm going to have to pay this guy 30 bucks an hour. And now like, how does it mean that fatigue? How? Well, because well, oh, oh, he, he's saying me, the, the, the difference in competence.
0: Because yeah. if you're paying yeah. the competent guy the same as the incompetent guy, then – there's yeah. It doesn't no work balance. that
2: way. So you have to make sure that that person, I mean, because then the living wage is going to increase as it is because those standards are going to increase. The prices are going to increase. Everything is going to increase along with potential inflation, which I don't really understand what the federal reserve is all about right now, but that's going to be a reality of what happens. That's, so that's if I end destroy up the fed, somebody, <laughs> so I have to make sure as a employer that if i am paying this guy who is one of my most valued workers 15 bucks an hour that whenever $15 $15 an hour becomes the minimum standard so not like i can't go below that number and this is like base level so 725 right now is $15 then then i have to increase everybody's salaries to make sure that i'm able to attain those people and make sure that those people are getting the same level of standards in terms of you know money that they were receiving prior that they will continue to receive in the future.
0: And the argument against that is you shouldn't even be in business because you can't afford that. But my problem with that is it's so difficult to make a business that it's just such a, such a
2: hindrance. And what, what else is happening? So I always had to remember this. So with minimum wage, you're not, in any of these industries, you're not paying people minimum wage. You always had to remember this. Minimum wage is the set base level that you have to pay people. So like maybe their first week to first two weeks, maybe month maximum, they're going to be making that much money. But then over time, they get raises and they move up from that money that they were making before. Some industries, you're getting paid less than that. But I mean, you might be getting paid minimum wage, but you might be working more hours as opposed to some some employers that are going to be paying you a higher wage based on making sure that they're able to keep you from going somewhere else. And you might be cut down on hours to some extent to make sure that they're able to afford as many people as they're paying. There's always business decisions based around this. So base level is always base level. Oh, but I wanted to add this to it. So Manchin, um, Joe Manchin, you know, the West Virginia senator, who's probably the most moderate of all the Democrats that are in the Senate, was, um, was, was pushing for something similar to what Nick was talking about with inflation. So he was arguing that we need to have a minimum wage to be set at $11 where index is at inflation. So that was another thing I just wanted to throw out there. And
1: that's why he was one of the senators who voted against the 15, even though he's a Democrat.
2: Yeah. So there's seven others. Let me just name them. So Joe Manchin, obviously, Kristen Sinema, Democrat from Arizona is one of my favorite Democrats that is in the Senate, John Tester, Democrat from Montana, Gene Shaheen, Democrat from New Hampshire, Maggie Hassan, Democrat from New Hampshire. Chris Coons, the Democrat from Delaware, Tom Carper, the other Democrat from Delaware, and Angus King, the Independent from Maine. So this was all about a procedural object- objection that was placed under this rule called the Byrd Rule, which, because this one specific aspect of the bill would have prevented the entire stimulus package from passing, based on what their you know what their data was showing they wanted to make sure that they would get passed so they wanted to directly look into this specific aspect of it and it was um authored by bernie sanders the amendment altogether which was rejected i just wanted to throw that in there just for people if they wanted to know more information about it we've talked a lot about minimum wage so far today but you know
0: yeah and last thing i want to say the way the When I'm looking at the minimum wage, for me, it seems like people want to create the strong middle class, which I totally understand and I respect. And that's they want everyone to be in the middle class. And I get that. But the way I see it is we're essentially just creating a bigger, lower class. That's what the minimum wage does. It creates less room for mobility because there's such a high base level that uh, to make any excess on top of that is more and more and more difficult. Um, So that's all I want to say on it for now. If you guys have any closing thoughts, that's fine. But otherwise, I would like to move on to uh, the public perception of how the Biden administration has been handling the COVID crisis this far into his uh, term. So any Um, any last comments?
2: One thing, just Federal Reserve, I, I hope this stuff moves up the stock market. I mean, I don't really care about the whole conversation. I mean, as a whole, as long as it has some benefit to the people. So like with the Federal Reserve complaining about how inflation is gonna rise and then retracting on their statements about how inflation isn't gonna rise and Powell coming in talking much more than he talked in the Trump or Obama administration, like three, two, three, sometimes even four times a week. I just hope that this stuff doesn't actually increase the amount of inflation because stimulus money is a good thing, and but having higher inflation is not necessarily going to benefit anyone either.
0: Dude, Two so, trillion dollars is a tenth of our economy. So just <laughs> yes. think about that. Like that that's that's big. Money. I, I
2: just, I just want to throw that in there just for people to under to understand like why the stock market is so volatile right now. Like all of us probably on in their Zoom screen right now are all losing money in the stock market because of <laughs> the amount of times Powell has come on the screen to just reiterate or go against or somehow Talk about something that is going to somehow shake up the economy because of his policies on gearing inflation.
0: I think people are eager for direction. And uh, so any comment he makes
1: is going to shake things up a lot. Pratik, I'd like to think of myself as having a choice, freedom of choice, a sense of agency, if you will. And let me tell you this no matter what Powell says, I will still continue to lose money in the stock market. It doesn't matter if interest rates go up, down, or stay the same. I'm going to continue making bad decisions, and the federal government cannot take that away from me. Exactly. And, Game's uh, up most all the of way. us are
2: all about making money. It does not matter whether, what, what policies are made in politics or what decisions are made. As long as we're able to increase the amount of money we're able to make from the bottom to the top, everybody, we're all happy. And that's why we should
0: get rid of capital gains, particularly. <laughs>
2: Get rid of capital (laughs) gains (laughs) tax. All right, so let me move on to the AP poll. So the AP NORC, is it N-O-R-C stands for NORC, I think, poll um, states that Americans largely back Biden's virus response. So out of all the people polled, um, again, we don't really know the amount of people that were in this, but in this poll... Um, for his job as president, of the 60% of the people that were adults voted to be in support of Biden's overall policy, as opposed to 40%, where Democrats were 94% approved of his term so far as president. While... I know it hurts
1: to say, Pratik. Six... I know it I know. hurts to say. <laughs> I know, I know.
2: And 6% <laughs> disagree with it that were Democrats, while 22% of Republicans are in agreement with his policy so far, as opposed to 77%. And while with the COVID 19 pandemic, Democrats have uh, agree 97% of how Biden is um, handling the pandemic, while 44% believe of Republicans believe that he's doing a good job handling the pandemic. And the final part of the poll is about the economy, where 88% of the Democrats um, that were polled agree with Biden in her- terms of how he's handling the economy, while only 17% of Republicans believe that Biden is doing a good job with the economy.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think people after having Trump, I think they're eager for a little stability and maybe that's what he's maybe that's all he needs to provide right now i I don't know if i've seen anything that i would say is exceptional and wow this is amazing but i think he's on course to do what he's saying he's trying to do Um,
2: most of his oh most of his virus stuff if donald trump didn't you know get this a vaccine through in the shortest period of time, which Democrats were all like magically not willing to believe until it happened after like a week after, after Biden becomes president, it was like three conveniently, days, three days, it was like three they days, conveniently throw out oh all these like vaccines are good and everything is perfect. And Pfizer's vaccine is approved until then. Like they were all negative about Trump's approach to the vaccine, but The irony is that a lot of the stuff that Biden has been able to do since Biden has become president has been largely because of a lot of policies that were enacted by Donald Trump in terms of getting this vaccine research through and getting all the, you know, the stuff completed in such a fast period of time that has allowed Biden to be successful in his so-called approach to handling the COVID-19 vaccine virus.
1: Critique. I love the spin. I think. Look, if people could have said the same thing about Trump's economic miracle uh, following the Obama years. Oh, Obama Nothing built up all the Obama infrastructure. He did the same the thing. No, 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 no. <laughs> listen, listen, dude. Up, okay, dude. At the same time, you're saying people are downplaying Trump's vaccine. It's because he downplayed it the entire time. He's like, guys, COVID. It's from China. They they messed up. But you know what? It's not that serious. Don't worry about it, you guys. We got it all under control. I don't by think Easter, that's true. It's gonna be fine. That's, not true that's Easter. what he said. He said Big by pause. Easter everything. Big would pause. Be pause. Fine. Big pause.
0: So it, I remember this because I was I was doing I was uh doing e-commerce shipping from China. So end of January, Trump said that we have to close down flights from China. Almost every, especially Democratic anything we're saying this is ridiculous why are we letting this happen this shouldn't be allowed to happen this is when nancy pelosi was in chinatown saying stop being racist come to chinatown everything's good and then right after we find out all this all this crazy stuff happened so trump was one of the only people saying actually there is something to be said about this virus we should we should recognize it so he made i know his i know his rhetoric wasn't great over time i know he wasn't unifying but he at least identified it before other people and that i'm almost positive
1: for the China stuff. I certainly agree with you. And I think he also did a good job in terms of restricting flights from Europe, which is where most of uh, the coronavirus got into, for example, the Northeast in places like Boston, New York, those are travelers from Europe, not from China. Um, But in terms of his rhetoric throughout the rest of the year, dude, he constantly kept saying everything will be fine. We've got it under control. Everything's great. The Biden missionary administration comes in and says, we don't even have a plan. There's nothing on paper for us to do well. And I don't know. Isn't that the
2: irony, though? Like, Biden is a very negative personality. while in comparison (sighs) to Trump, like, regardless, he was much more optimistic about what was going to happen and how we're going to solve this, which... Um, a lot of the policies that they were able to implement and getting through, getting us out of this potential big catastrophe from happening, from our like economy dying to like eighteen thousand in the stock market, to even like all the businesses and stores and restaurants shutting down. If it was up to Biden, we'd still be in COVID nineteen shutdowns. It would have been like Costco. I don't know if you guys have ever been to Costco. They still act like the virus just happened yesterday. They have all these lines everywhere. You can't go in. You have all these things you had to go through. You can only go through particular directions. Like, come on. Every other store, including like Sam's and all of their competitors, have been able to move up in the world. Be like, oh, we got this stuff somewhat under control now. Now we can have managed to have people in proper areas. These people are still trying to monitor where people stand. Like, it's overboard. So, so that's we, how I see about the Biden, that Biden administration, like they benefited from their negative perspective about literally everything in the world, like until because of a lot of the benefits that Donald Trump put them in and propped them up in terms of them handling the vaccine and how they handled like getting it through and getting but, all their. But Prateek, notice through.
1: how you only talk about the vaccine. That's the only positive you can really say. His, well, his administration I mean, did not do a great job yeah, otherwise.
2: Look, think about it this way. There are states that, I mean, at the end of the day, a Republican administration is all about how states handle their situations, right? So, all uh, government, federal government can do is provide them with resources and funding and provide them with all the instruments and all the equipment necessary for them to handle all these vaccine breakouts which the Trump administration did a really good job with the ventilators and providing all their resources and providing funding to all these different states. Now you can argue if they did a good enough job or whether another administration could have done a better job. That's all theoretical. Like me, I'm going to argue, yeah, they did a great job and you're going to argue, oh man, but they critique, could have done a would you
0: job. argue but- Trump used his bully pulpit in a productive way that, that maybe helped us Stay strong together and push through this? Or did he say, You're on my side, or you're, your, you're on your side? And that's just well, how things are. I would. Because to I me, say- he, he, he created too much collective anxiety that Biden is somewhat relieving. And Biden doesn't have to do much to do it because Trump was such a divisive character. But so I'll give you this. I, I'm not sure Biden would have responded any better if the COVID crisis had hit when he was in office. But I think Trump shot himself in the foot multiple times.
1: Will, Pratik, maybe this out. is a cold take, by the way. Maybe this is a cold take. But I genuine believe, genuinely believe that if Trump was half the man he says he is. And actually pulled the country together after COVID initially broke out. I think he would have crushed the November election. I think he still would have been president had he handled it better. I, would, I agree. I would
2: say this. Yep. Let me add one more thing, though. With the Biden side, like, what is what has happened recently? I don't know if this happened with the Trump side or not. People argue that it did. People argue that it didn't. But- with Biden like the amount of vaccines that they've been able to provide to some states while to other states they haven't provided has been based around what state governors are democrat and which states state governors are not I don't know if it was the same case with Donald Trump with him providing more funding and resources to republican states over democrat states but I happen to be in a North Carolina which a democrat is the governor so we've been able to you know been be a good state recently because we've been provided all the resources but some states that are in our country that are run by Republican administrations are haven't finding it much more difficult because of the amount of resources that Democrats have provided them with providing them with the amount of vaccines and the amount of support from funding situations that weren't that may have been allotted similar differently whenever Republicans were there with Donald Trump. I don't know, but it's definitely worth looking into and worth the conversation.
1: Right. That honestly, that would be really disturbing to me if yeah, it maybe. wasn't correlated to the number of cases or the need in those states. Because I mean, when I'm thinking about it off the top of my head, New York, California, Washington, these are states where there's a lot of travel, there's a lot of international business, they were hit the hardest at the very start of it. And if they still have the most cases on a per capita basis, then I think they should get the most funding on a per capita basis. However, if that's not the case anymore, then I totally agree with you. I think it should be looked into further. And Um, that would be very disturbing. Well,
0: especially in North Carolina, it's not that dense of a population. So I don't know if this is just anecdotal, but if you have evidence of that, that's certainly something.
2: See, I I find this to be really interesting though. Like in this specific pandemic, state governments had a lot more control. This specific
0: pandemic, not all of the other pandemics.
2: Yes, this (laughs) specific pandemic. Because most of the other crises that we've seen, it really depends on like how administrations do things. But with this with the Trump administration and maybe how Biden's handling it right now like states have a lot more control and power in deciding a lot of things which that has been a really major take from COVID-19 itself because in past past like instances where there has been some federal emergency or there has been some major you know thing that has shaken up the entire country the federal government has taken a larger st- larger stance and you know been more involved but this in particular, which in my perspective as a Republican, I'm happy about, is that states have shown a lot more initiative and states have been more in control of over uh, control of things going on, like, especially with, like New York and California and how they've handled things like COVID. <laughs> We're going to be
0: transitioning into Cuomo, who's been under fire as of late, his sexual assault allegations recently came out that he was fudging the data with regards to deaths in the nursing homes after COVID started. I, I believe there's upwards of like 9,000 deaths and just just to give you some, something to compare it to, how many people died in 9-11? Like 3,000 people. So we have all these thousands of people dying and he's able to fudge the data because he said otherwise Trump might investigate us. And my, my thought is, what about everyone else that would give a shit that you're throwing up the data with regard to deaths of COVID, this huge pandemic that you're supposedly controlling well and your approval rating's up. Your approval rating's up all false data. So I just, I think it's super disgusting. Um, what are your guys' thoughts?
1: I think it's disturbing too. I think I mean, this is a major news story, not in New York, but in Florida, like six months ago or something, there were some data scientists who had said, Oh, the governor is yeah. forcing us to fudge the numbers, there are some real numbers, but what they're publishing isn't real. So I mean, we've seen this in both Republican and Democratic, Democrat controlled states. And I think it's a shame. Honestly, we're all adults. If something's a real crisis, just tell us like it is, and let us decide for ourselves how we want to respond. And take well, that actually, information they
0: had they had correctly had the number of covid deaths in the whole state or the whole city or whatever it was specifically in the nursing homes they basically said oh. their nursing home deaths occurred elsewhere gotcha so he was trying to cover his own ass it well, was really it's a huge scandal i hope he gets him I think he's been relieved of some special covid powers but I hope he gets out of office pretty quick
1: not to make light of it But certainly to make light of it, I I mean, the last time we talked, I think this is two episodes ago. I made a joke at the very end saying how he uh, you know, instigated the whole thing because of his love (laughs) for older women who he was uh, visiting in their retirement homes. I think I called him like Bubba the Love Sponge level. Like, dude, the guy's a dog. He loves women. But I said that as a joke before any of this stuff came out. And now that it came out, dude, on the one hand, Now I feel a little nervous about what I say on the show. I don't want it to come true, whatever I joke about. But on the other hand, dude, all you have to do is look at his face, dude. You can see it in his eyes. Um, But yeah, the latest allegations with, I think it was a 25-year-old staffer, another staffer in her 20s, and then a staffer in her early 30s where it's, oh, he came in, kissed me on the lips, touched the small of my back, asked me if I had ever slept with an older man before and touched me like dude that is so disgusting and the fact that you would do that like in an enclosed office space where there's no exit and you're literally like in between the door and the other person that is the definition of sexual harassment and assault so i i think it's scummy i think he should um i think he should face repercussions although it is a little sad that it had to get to this point where I think in, in the past couple of months, Republicans have been calling for him to not, you know, have his emergency powers anymore because the crisis has slowly started to fade. Um, and yet, I think, Pratik, the one thing I have to give you side is you guys have some principles, OK? I think like 20 Republicans <laughs> voted against removing his um, powers because they said, hey, we want there to be some more evidence. We know that if we take a hard stance on this, too, we're going to get screwed (laughs) and same talking points are going to hit us. So let's get out ahead of this and be the nice guys.
2: Yeah. So let me let me give you more information about the story itself. So New York state lawmakers on Friday approved a bill that would strip embattled Governor Andrew Cuomo of temporary emergency powers. He was granted last year to deal with the covid-19 pandemic. The state assembly passed the bill by a margin of one hundred and seven to forty three. Hours after the Senate approved the legislation in a 43 to 30 vote, um, what does it say? The efforts to limit his power came as Cuomo deals with two major scandals: the cover-up of COVID nursing home data by his administration and acu- administration and accusations by three women that he sexually harassed them. So, like his main, the main thing that started up all this was there was a New York Times story that talked about how Cuomo aides rewrote nursing home report to hide higher death toll. And then they looked into this more and more, and they found out that Cuomo had been doing a lot of sketchy stuff, and he had underreported the number of COVID deaths related to nursing homes by up to 50%. So that's an outrageous margin, and that more than 9,000 nursing home residents as of that month um, in June died of coronavirus. So this was, I mean, this, this is a sad story as it is. And I feel like it's a good thing that the lawmakers themselves, regardless of whether you're a Republican or Democrat, have decided that it's in their best interest as a state to strip Cuomo. But I do, I am a little bit more, um, what is it, non, I'm not absolutely sure what's going to happen to Cuomo in terms of after he leaves his office, because I don't think he's going to go to jail or anything, but he'll probably be fined and he'll probably be impeached which will prevent him from running for any future office. And his lieutenant governor will probably replace him as the governor, which will probably happen a lot sooner than later because a lot of Democrats are on board with, you know, criticizing Cuomo about this, which sometimes I feel like politics plays a major role in, you know, them deciding whether they want to get rid of somebody or not. Even if there is a lot of stuff that is about these people. And like, I am am curious what's going to happen with Cuomo because he has done a lot of bad things.
0: Yeah, he's done a lot of bad things. But also remember, people were saying, especially in the beginning of the COVID crisis, don't watch Trump's briefings, watch Cuomo. Cuomo's got his shit together. He knows what he's doing. His approval rate was what, like 80%. So this whole time we listened to him, and then we later find out that this happened. So it's just such a bad taste in the mouth. I hope he doesn't hold public office again. But, you know, like you said, if he's on someone's team that wants him there, he's probably going to be there. So that's unfortunate. We'll see what happens. Um, With that, though, we're going to move on to our next topic. I believe we're going to be talking about Middle Eastern policy a little bit.
2: Yeah, so this happened, um, I think, this week. So two of the most influential faith leaders in the world reached across a religious divide on Saturday, so today, to promote peace and unity in a historic meeting. So Pope Francis, 84, the head of the world's 1.2 billion Roman Catholics, and Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani, 90, The spiritual leader of the world's Shia Muslims, which is all who is also like the primary leader of Iran, met in Iraq for the first time um, in a long, long period of time uh, since this has been the first time that Pope Francis really left since the COVID-19 pandemic. So this is a really big deal because both the, you know, the Shia Muslims and the Roman Catholics, which have been two groups of people that have been warring for many many years, Islam and Christianity have had a lot of the religious differences centuries. that has led to <laughs> centuries of crusades, violence, you know, things like terrorism all across the board, and I feel like this is a great starting point that we're going to potentially see some interfaith dialogue between the two leaders of, you know, the modern world in their in their own aspects.
0: Yeah, you know, I think it's I think it's a really productive thing. Like you said, this is not typical. Um, you generally don't see popes going out and doing this. I know Pope Francis has been a little different on that front. He is trying to reach out to more people and build more of a global community. And obviously, with all these crises we're facing, we're realizing more and more and more we need this to be a global solution. And regardless of what religion you believe in, we all have the same, hopefully, the same destination to have everyone have as little suffering as possible and live the best life they can. So. Hopefully that dialogue will spark something, maybe minimize violence, especially in the Middle
1: East. I'm hopeful, but it's hard to say. It's very early on.
2: Nick, you have any thoughts?
1: Well, man, I think this is coming a little late in the game, if I have to say so. A lot of people are applauding the Pope. Oh, great job, Mr. Pontiff taking a position. But honestly, it's been you know 20 years of just desolation and destruction in an area of the world that used to have, I mean, 10 times as many Christians as it does today. And for him to come at the end of it, it's sort of. I think it says two things. Um, one, you know, of course, he wasn't the pope at that time. It's political. So I, it's, Popes it's, are political. It, so know, the it's... Catholic Church is always yeah. changing, even though the Word of God is eternal. The Catholic Church always changing. <laughs> but for, sorry, that was maybe <laughs> too much <music. laughs> But I think what it also signals is. Um, a change in U.S. foreign policy. And while, you know, the Holy See in Vatican City is not connected with U.S. foreign policy on a one-to-one basis, it's still influenced by it. And I think just with the diffusion of tensions in the Middle East, ISIL is no longer, ISIS is no longer a thing. Um, Or at least they've gotten to very, very small numbers. Thanks to President Trump, I'll give some kudos for Teek. I know you're a neocon, you love the intervention, but you love bombs, you love bombing people. (laughs)
2: But that makes it sound horrible. It does
1: (laughs) Shade aside, I think it does speak to um, overall, I think everyone's just tired of war in the Middle East. And sure, things are still happening with Saudi Arabia. Things are still happening between us and Iran and Iraq and Syria and Israel. I, I guess things haven't changed all that much. But I think the magnitude has definitely gone down. Tensions are deflated. And I think this is a sign of that, that this dialogue is even able to take place is just a reflection of the fact that um, the wars are starting to finally die down. And maybe we're shifting towards a new direction. Who knows? Maybe uh, Canada and Iceland get into it in the next 10 years. I would look forward to that. <laughs> and and with, that, looks, with, that, with, that, with that said, I think that transitions well into like Biden's foreign policy in the Middle yeah, East. Specifically. So
2: what I wanted to add is Biden, I don't know if as many people know about this, but Biden is the second Roman Catholic to hold the position. Oh, he of is Catholic. Since JFK and he was banned from communion because of his abortion views like there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff about biden that you know not really talked about in the mainstream which i was really surprised that he, they didn't really talk about how he was roman catholic and how that has influenced a lot of his policies and views because it was a major point of the vice president debate of 2012 between him and paul ryan so it's a very interesting conversation but I feel like th- this is one of those things that maybe some, they, they argue that his Catholic faith might actually influence some of his policies and it might well be. So since Biden has taken office, Biden has been very different from how he's handled Middle East policy from both Trump and Obama. So he is, he's all about, you know, having, le- he doesn't want to put as much focus on the Middle East. He wants to, you know, shift elsewhere and mainly to places like Asia and South America, where we've had an impacting policy and over the years. But because he feels like Middle East has been a waste of time, because in his many years of his Senate time ta- and Senate term, and him being involved in many of Obama's policies with the Middle East and creating a lot of the b- big deals that were created, they all were essentially made because of a lot of the influence passed by Joe Biden himself. So things like he launches reprisal attacks against Iranian targets on Syria. So his policy is that he wants to, you know, be, be strong against Iran in places where they are engaging in military conflict, primarily in um, syria however he also wants to increase the relationship within between iran and the united states which hasn't been that you know great over the past many years as we talked about in one of our previous episodes and also he also um released damning intelligence um overtly linking the crown prince of saudi arabia to the assassination of journalist jamal khashoggi which Obama or Donald Trump weren't really strong against Saudi Arabia. And it's like a really big, you know, conversation that has happened between both sides of the aisle because Saudi Arabia has done a lot of um, shady things in the past, you know, 10, 15 years. So this like is like killing one of, an American
0: citizen journalist, yes, for instance.
2: Exactly. So Biden is trying to distinguish himself from being as bully bullish as compared to Donald Trump in terms of how, how Trump was handling a lot of their situations that were going on, such as the assassination of General Qasem Soleimani. But at the same time, he's also trying to be more aggressive than Barack Obama on handling um, Saudi Arabia and the amount of influence that they have. And in, ter- in taking a solid line against Syria's use of chemical weapons and you know Russian meddling and his, him, his, his policies with Yemen. So Biden has been very different. Me as a neocon, like, even if I disagree completely with Biden's domestic policies, I think Biden's doing a really good job so far as a foreign policy president. So I just want to hear y'all's thoughts.
0: I I think he's been strong on Russia. I I personally would like to see him talk more about China specifically like Trump did. I feel like we've kind of let off the gas pedal on that one a little bit. Um, Specifically in the Middle East, I think it takes a lot of courage to go against one of your strongest allies like in saudi arabia for instance um and i'm sure a lot of people are telling them not to do that because that's such a powerful relationship for us we make so much money off selling arms to those guys so
2: it might mess yeah. up a relationship with israel that's the only thing i'm worried about which you know that you, you could say that but but
0: i think israel also knows that they kind of need us this is just how i feel they i feel like they, they know they need us like who who else are they going to ally with if not us like, who, who's going to pr- provide protection and arms sales to them?
2: This- I, will, I will make this argument to promote the Jewish cause and promote Israelis altogether since they have received independence. They have won every single war that they've been involved in since the Seven Days War where they were literally attacked yeah, it's like by five every wars, single... Right? yeah. Uh, there are three wars that they had with all the Middle Eastern countries. And most so that, of them were brought Middle against, most of them, they
0: were actually being attacked. It wasn't them being the, the aggressor, as far as I understand.
2: Yeah, all of them. And in all those wars, all these big Middle Eastern countries were all basically bullying on them, trying to take them over by ganging up against Israel. And Israel has fought back and won every single time. Like, in all honesty, like, if you really look at how Israel has functioned in the last 50, 60 years since they've been an independent country, they have one of the strongest militaries in the world. But why? That's because of
0: us.
2: (laughs) Maybe. We provide them with military arms and potential support. But Israel itself is a country that has somehow, in some way, defeated all of their adversaries and made sure that they have, like, you know, they're all well-trained people. Every single Israeli citizen is is a part of the military. So everyone that is that is a part of Israel has, you know, has military capability. I could say they the same thing know, about South
0: Korea or there's plenty of countries. You,
2: that you right. can. But I would argue that with Israel itself, they do receive intel and they have received support from the Americans. But it, it's been very inconsistent when they've provided support and when they haven't because they've tried to make sure that they're able to keep their relationship with Saudi Arabia somewhat intact, too. And now when we start engaging with countries like Iran, which have, you know, they have a lot more of a hostility towards them than even us. Since the creation of the Iranian government and the creation of the Israeli government, they they hate them a lot more than they hate us. So like with Iran and Israel, we have to make sure that we're able to keep a line together. So we don't make sure that we don't mess up our relationship with Iran and or mess up our relationship with Israel. Well, Not we saying have we have any relationship? relationships yeah. with Iran altogether, yeah. but if we do start engaging in relationships under a Biden administration, because we have the Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Israel, that whole you know situation diaspora going on in the Middle East of those three hegemons, we have to make sure that we're able to keep solid relationships with each of them if we're going to. So, so going would you be against Biden- death,
0: Uh, taking a stand against the prince of saudi arabia then because that's that's a big political move he's essentially saying the your your leader just murdered someone and we don't like that and we're actually going to take that into account
1: in our future decisions
2: actually I'll, i'll let nick talk what's your thoughts on all this and including the jamal khashoggi thing
1: well dude i think in the past you know the us and saudi arabia have such a strange relationship like in the 70s, Saudi Arabia was bankrolling us after we got off the gold standard. There was a secret meeting between the U.S. State Department and the head of Saudi Arabia to do what essentially we ended up doing with China, where China bought a bunch of U.S. bonds and propped up the U.S. economy in the 90s. The relationship goes back along. Basically what I'm saying, the relationship goes back a long time. We, we had benefits. We sort of had first dibs, well, not first dibs, but uh, we bought a lot of Saudi oil. And in return, Saudi Arabia would use those revenues to reinvest in the United States. and But I think now at this point, in critique, you're going to hate this, but I think now is a natural inflection point to start diverging because our need for Saudi oil is not what it used to be. We don't have the same energy crisis that we were dealing with in the 70s. We don't have the same geopolitical need for them in the peninsula, which I mean, you you could say that they're still a strong player. All the stuff that's going on in Yemen, obviously, we want to be involved in that. And we talked about this a couple episodes ago in terms of the Biden pullback um, from Yemen and from Saudi Arabia. But I think the winds have shifted domestically. And I think whether it was uh, Biden being elected or someone else being in office, I think no matter who was in charge, U.S. domestic politics have shifted. People don't like Saudi Arabia. They haven't liked it for a few years now. And it's finally bubbled up to the surface to be like, wait, who is Osama bin Laden again? Oh, wait, he was a Saudi born billionaire that, you know, started saying death to America in the 90s. There are all these Saudi led extreme sects of Islam, which, um, you know, you can't group in with the rest of the religion and all that. And that's a whole different debate. But um, Saudi Wahhabism has been one of the biggest proponents of political um, extremism violence and jihadi activity in the middle east and i don't think you can separate those two things bernie brings it up a lot that we should not be friends with saudi arabia but but even with that said you could say trump did not have that stance so are you saying the inflection point comes after
0: trump or you say trump probably should have done that but he just didn't recognize that
1: i'm saying it's (laughs) been building up that way over a period of time and whether trump was yeah whether trump was 9 11 right i mean let's be real Yeah, whether it was still Trump in office or if it was Biden coming in or someone else, it could have been Amy Klobuchar for all all I know. Like, no matter who it was, I think things domestically in the United States have shifted. The general public does not have a strong opinion of Saudi Arabia. And I think the recent recognition of the Biden administration for the prince's role in the murder of a U.S. citizen abroad, I think that's icing on top. And Saudi Arabia, sorry, you're no longer my best friend. Now someone else (laughs) is. Yeah, and I
0: I really do give serious props to Biden for that, because like you're saying, it is a huge shift. And I still believe even if Trump were in office again, he has a tendency to want to schmooze these heavy handed leaders, these dictators, right? The Russians, the Saudis. So I don't think he ever would have said anything like that because he thought it would have ruined some kind of negotiation he had in his head. So I think it's really strong. And I'm I'm grateful that Biden did something like that.
2: Prateek? I will, I will add this though, like for as a Neocon perspective, the problem with Saudi Arabia is Saudi Arabia is that powerful. We don't think that. It's not like the first intuition that comes to our minds. Like, oh, yeah, Saudi Arabia, I mean, they're, they're oil power. We're like, not, we don't really need their oil anymore. We can literally produce all of our own energy supply and be able to be isolated from literally everybody and still be able to sustain ourselves to be one of the strongest economies in the world. America has that power. Because of a lot of the policies that were implemented since the late 70s to now, in terms of energy policy and us trying to become sustainable and us trying to become, um, what what do you call it, self-sufficient in terms of us providing our own oil and creating our own natural gas and all the stuff that we have in the United States. We're not reliable on anybody anymore or dependent on anyone. However, With Saudi Arabia, the policies that get impacted is things like that have to deal with all the other Gulf countries and all the surrounding countries in that area. Saudi Arabia is where Mecca is. That's very important to know. So Saudi Arabia is the heartland of Islam altogether. A lot of the countries around the world that aren't in the Western world have Islam as their predominant religion. So a lot of these countries, whether they are Turkey, Egypt, Uh, Many of the Gulf countries, so UAE, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, any of those countries, they all have some allegiance to Saudi Arabia to some extent because they're all Sunni Islamic countries. Now, what happens is that whenever we start engaging with hostile relations with Saudi Arabia, it all trickles down. And eventually what can potentially happen is that they might restrict the amount of people that from the United States that are able to come and do a hajj in Mecca, which could create more, more relationship problems between Islamic people and Americans altogether. And if you have those kind of instances, you have to be wary about your policies with Saudi Arabia. I'm saying that because Saudi Arabia, is, Sunni, Muslim, Sunni Islam is a large religion around the world. And whatever policies that we implement directly can, you know, harm our future relationships with other countries. And I'm not saying Saudi Arabia is as powerful as they once were, because a lot of these other countries are propping up and becoming more independent. And they don't really need anybody else's help anymore, apart from American aid in the military. Primarily, and uh, apart from maybe foreign aid, you know, help. However, so you mentioned, sorry. Yeah. So, but however, it is important to make sure that we're looking at all this stuff before we engage in any foreign policy negotiations or diplomacy, because of the impact that one country has on a lot of other countries around the world. And
0: I'm not doubting that impact. I'm just not sure caring for the religiosity of people trying to pilgrimage to Saudi Arabia is necessarily the biggest like strongest point i don't think enough americans are even muslim for that to be a big concern internally and externally i don't think we really care i don't think we really care how we're portraying other religions i I mean
2: opec is the other reason that we have to think about them so when it comes to oil prices united states no matter what they are we're not going to move away from oil in the next 10 years sorry nick don't mean to you know we're we're moving for that are green energy people we are moving away though Right. Because you saw this in the last like economic problems that we've been having with the stock market. Whenever oil prices jack up, it directly impacts everybody else. So, because we are still an oil powered economy, I'm not saying it should be the case. I'm not saying that we need to continue to be an oil powered economy. I'm saying that we are an oil powered economy. And a lot of these cars and stuff and transportation that happens in the United States, along with most of the Western world, and including countries like China and India and all the other BRIC countries that are all rapidly developing at a massive rate, they're all using this kind of, you know, they're still using oil and petroleum to power their cars. So what we need to make sure is that any policies that we do, it could still be like that 1979 oil crisis where these countries jack up our oil prices just because they don't they're pissed at how we're handling things. We have to be able to become more self-sufficient over time, but we have to keep all that stuff in mind because that kind of stuff can lead to a major global crisis and global breakdown, which doesn't only include involve the United States and involves every other major country around the world. And I'm saying, good. It's a good thing we're moving towards green energy and solar energy and nuclear energy and natural gas and all this stuff. But until we're fully into that whole scheme of things and we're not still reliant upon oil-powered vehicles, transportation so do I, is one of the most, most his, important things in the world.
0: Do you and think his comment on Saudi Arabia? Um, do you think his comments on Saudi Arabia, uh, along with the uh, canceling of the Keystone XL pipeline, may have been a bad decision? It's like you can't do both sense. those things. Because no, it, it's harder saying... to be sustainable. So maybe See, we should. There, it depends.
2: The it depends on how you look at it from a moral argument. You can make that argument. Oh, yeah, we need to move away from oil. Oh, we need to, you know, tell tell Saudi Arabia that they're wrong for what they did. and hold them accountable. That's all great. And from a practical mind it's different from how, you know, what is good and what is not good. The practicality side of it is that there are a lot of impacts that can happen from policies that get implemented and things that are set. And if you piss off Saudi Arabia enough, they got enough countries in their gang pulpit that are literally puppets to whatever Saudi Arabia tells them to do, that can directly impact oil prices, that can directly impact the amount of money you pay on gas and the amount of money I pay on gas. And that kind of stuff can directly derail an economy without it actually doing anything involving any policies that you're doing altogether. Just because a country is pissed off at you. And I believe that we need to tinker a lot of those comments. This is why I'm a neocon. A lot of the policies that you implement, a lot of the things that you say, a lot of the ways that you interact with other countries directly, negatively or positively impacts how you and every other country around the world involve, including you, that you're doing business relations with gets impacted. And I would rather our economy continue to go stronger and everybody in the, in the country along with everybody in the world, become stronger in terms of how their economy is and i would rather you not create some kind of global problem with a country like saudi arabia just because you're pissed off at how they treated a the citizen of the united states even that, if that person was but we have to America. also
0: show that it's unacceptable they can't just go you around do. killing citizens of your country especially you if it's ordered from the top
2: but, but that's that's why obama and trump were very cautious on doing this There's a reason for it. No, no, I I completely get that. I'm not saying that it's like a good thing or bad thing. I'm saying even if I agree that, you know, the, the prince, crown prince of Saudi Arabia should be, you know, you know, should be criticized for what he did and should be condemned for the actions that he took in terms of assassinating Jamal Khashoggi, you have to keep into account that our policies can directly impact everybody else in the entire yeah. world. And oil is still <laughs> the monopoly of the world until it's not.
0: That's true. And Nick, I want to get your thoughts on this. We know you're big into energy, energy, energy policy. You know a lot about this stuff. So I'd like to hear your thoughts.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I'm struggling because I find myself agreeing with you guys um, on some level because like you were saying, to, Tyler, like you pointed out, you do we cancel since we canceled the keystone xl pipeline in the, in this latest bill that's part of what's included in there it's like what's more important um, you know? right exactly i mean we get the majority the majority of our oil imports are coming from canada i think it's something like it's above 50% 70%. it's it's a lot and the the amount that we get from saudi arabia relatively very little it's like 6% 5% maybe less so in the grand scheme of things saudi arabia Doesn't matter that much, but Pratik made an excellent point. It's their influence over the other trading blocks in that region and how they can influence the other members of OPEC. And I think that's the important part of the soft power argument, where even though we don't necessarily need Saudi Arabia itself, we do need some of their alliances and some of their influence still. So I think, I mean, look, you said ten years. I don't know about ten years, man. We're supposed to be uh, decarbonizing the electric electricity center by or a sector by 2035. Um, There's going to be a lot of changes during the Biden administration towards green, clean energy. And I think the transition is going to happen a lot faster than we think domestically. But you bring up a great point. Internationally, oil is still king. Petro states like Russia still have a lot of developing countries. If you're a
0: developing country, good luck. Good luck having energy without oil. You know, it's just the most efficient, cheapest way to have energy,
1: right? Well, for for cars for transit, yeah, you're you're right. Um, it's not all the other it's the stuff. It's mainly
2: thing. transportation. But, but that's
1: the yeah. most. But that's, that's like important. in a global economy, like yep, that, that's, that's everything. Yeah, you're right. And I don't know a lot. There has been a lot of hype over the years. I mean, going back to the '70s when we had the oil crisis, people were investing heavily in biofuels. Like, oh man, biofuels—they're going to save us. Chuck Grassley from Iowa, who's a dinosaur, the guy's in his 80s. He's still thinking of running for another term. Uh, I mean, he's been in office so like he's been in office. Actually, never mind. I don't want to go there. I don't want (laughs) to trash (laughs) like half a century. He's he's got a great Twitter presence. Would highly recommend that. But in any case, I think there are going to be a lot of changes uh, domestically. That's going to shift foreign policy. But Pratik and you, Tyler, made some great points, which is it's still going to take a while for that to happen. And um, this may be a step in the right direction from my perspective, but it's going to take a lot more steps until things transform in a fundamental way
0: well said and with that I, we've covered all our topics for today i i hope you guys enjoyed the show any final comments from either nick or Pratik?
2: No, just stay safe all set out there
0: yeah stay safe out there thank you for tuning in uh we post our show every week we're having nick on more and more often we think he's a great addition to the show i hope you guys really enjoyed the conversation and we'll be back next week take care yeah
1: and if you guys don't like me being on the show please write into tyler and patik <laughs> Tell them not to invite me back. That way I can sleep in and enjoy my weekends.
2: (laughs) (laughs) We enjoy having you on then.
1: No, it's great to be on. All kidding aside. Great talking with you guys. Have a great day. Yeah, have a good one. Later.